Why do we meditate? Most people have this idea that meditation means sitting down, cross-legged, eyes closed, and focusing on some object. Do you meditate with your eyes closed or open? I have been advocating open eye meditation for a couple of years now. And people who have trained their minds to meditate with their eyes closed always complain. How to meditate lie, you open your eyes, so many distractions. Then I ask them, throughout your daily life, how often are your eyes open and how often are they closed? If you train your mind to meditate with your eyes closed, then you wouldn't have to meditate when your eyes are open. And it's very obvious because when I give instructions for open eye meditation, the first thing those closed eye meditators will complain is they cannot meditate. Because the mind can be very easily habituated to do things. It was usually a struggle, a very steep learning curve for people who have trained their minds to meditate with their eyes closed, to grapple with this new habit of meditating with the eyes open. Those who persist become grateful. Those who cannot say that this method doesn't work for them. And particularly those people who have trained in the popular samatha method of meditation where they just focus on one object, particularly the breath, either at the nostrils or at the abdomen. Particularly those who do anapanasati at the nostrils and used to just focusing on a single object. As several yogis have done that for many, many years, 10, 15, 20 years. And they have not done vipassana before. When such yogis try to switch to vipassana, there's always a great hurdle. Because the mind is so used to just focusing on one single object and getting the peace and tranquility there. In fact, one of the uh, daughter of hardcore Anapana yogis, who has been meditating for about 20 over years, accused the mother of escapism. Whenever she has any problems, she just shut herself in her room, close her eyes and meditate, and then get away from it. But that doesn't solve the problem, does it? You're just seeping things under the carpet. But that doesn't happen only with focused awareness on a single object. I also teach what I call open awareness, which is something not found in orthodox Theravada Buddhist meditation. No such word exists. In fact, this word came from the Tibetans. To them, open awareness, being aware of what's happening with the senses, is classified as shamatha practice, not vipassana. And this is a bit strange for orthodox Theravadins because if you watch what's happening with the six senses, there's vipassana, there's not samatha. How can that be shamatha? 
And also, if you follow the classification of Visuddhi Magga, you won't get any concentration by watching the six senses. According to Visuddhi Magga, all the jhanas can only be obtained by focusing on a non-ultimate, a conceptual object. And that's how Visuddhi Magga defines jhana. Absorption into a conceptual object and imagination, the visualization of the mind. Although from the orthodox Theravadin theoretical point of view, it is not possible. Yogis who have done focused awareness before and who are willing to try out the new method of open awareness Some of them who are more successful in open awareness confess that they are surprised that they can actually get the similar degree of samadhi as they could with focused awareness. And to them it's really very surprising. Initially when they started on open awareness, they had so much doubt because the mind is so used to focusing on a single object and getting the peace and calm and tranquility and then suddenly when it opens up to many objects it's very unsettling that's very natural because you're so used to staying with one object suddenly you open up so many objects how on earth can you get composed? but because they have enough faith in the teacher and they're persistent enough then eventually they get through this initial period of adjustment which can be very difficult because the eyes will be watering and you're very strenuous that they don't know how to maintain that awareness of not trying to focus on objects because they're so used to focusing on objects even when you try to ask them to open up to the six senses they go focusing from one sense object to another (laughs) and that makes it even more stressful for them bad enough to focus on your breath but now you're going to dump you all over the place After a period of adjustment, then they begin to realize you don't have to really put in so much effort. All you need to do is to step back, relax, and allow the mind to just pick up whatever you can. Then they're surprised to find out that eventually they can get a similar degree of composure. And they wonder how is it possible the mind is aware of so many things happening and yet it is composed. I have to redefine what is meant by Samadhi. Samadhi is a Pali word that is made up of three parts, Sang, A, and Di. Literally, if you break up the words etymologically, Sang means properly, A means to bring, and Di means to place. Properly bring and place the mind. Properly bring and place the mind where you want to place it. That means you have some sort of control over your mind. How is that state reached? I further qualify by saying that when you reach Samadhi, then you get composed. It means to say that you can properly bring and place your mind to whatever you want without being distracted by thoughts, feelings and perceptions. 
Well, this is quite in line with one of the explanations or definitions given in the suttas, which describes samadhi as non-distractedness of mind. The mind is not distracted by thoughts, feelings and perceptions. It doesn't mean that you have no thoughts. There could be thoughts, there could be feelings, there could be perceptions, just as there are sense objects happening at the senses. But you are not bothered by that. It's just like another sense object which comes and goes. Some people ask me, do you have any scriptural basis for your so-called open awareness? I have a couple of sutta references for that. The most famous one, I suppose, would be the instructions given to Bahia. You have heard of Bahia? the ascetic who wore robes made of bark fiber. Somehow, Bahia renounced the world and he was staying somewhere else in Suparaka port, some distance away from Sawati. When he was there, he was very austere. I think he used a skull to collect arms and he was wearing this ropes made of bark fiber, very highly revered and respected by his supporters there, and they all regarded him as an arahant. Somehow this idea also got into him, and he himself thought, well, I'm an arahant, and I'm the one who knows the way to arahantship. Then one day a deva appeared in front of him and told him, Bahia, you are not an arahant, neither do you know the way to arahantship. And the good thing Bahia was spiritually matured enough not to be defensive, but he said, oh, if I'm not an arahant, who then is? Who knows the way to arahantship? Then the deva told him, Samasambuddha. Godama Samasambuddha has arisen, is now staying in Sawati, and he is the one who is the real Arahant. You are not an Arahant. But he uh, felt a sense of urgency and he wanted to go and see Buddha immediately. He set out from Suparaka Pot and staying only one night at every place that he walked through. And finally he reached Sawati, Jetawana, Anatta Binika's orchard or monastery and when he got there he asked the monks where the Buddha was and the monk said the blessed one has gone to Savati for arms instead of waiting for him at the monastery what he did was he rushed to Savati and went looking for the Buddha and he saw the Buddha at the road on the street begging for arms and immediately he approached the Buddha paid homage to the Buddha and implored the Buddha to teach him the Dhamma in brief. And the Buddha said, Wait, Bahia. This is not the right time. I'm still on Amsram. Wait until I complete my Amsram. And then Bahia was very persistent and said, One day, if the Blessed One has compassion on me, we don't know if there's any danger that will befall you or me. And please, Teach me the Dhamma in brief. Second time the Buddha refused and told him, You should 
wait until I finish. Also the third request, the Buddha said, since you are so insistent, let me give you some instructions. And he said, Bahia, in the seen, there shall be only the seen. In the heard, there shall be only the heard. In the sense, there shall be only the sense. In the cognized, there shall be only the cognized. Thus, you should train yourself. Then he went on to give some more instructions. That if you are able to train yourself in this way, then you will not be by that. And if you are not by that, then you will not be in that. If you are not in that, then you will neither be here, nor there, nor beyond the two. All this sounds very cryptic. <laughs> but as soon as he heard that, he became an Arahan. <laughs> Anyone here got sort of fun? <laughs> That's a very solid evidence I have, I think. In the scene, there's only the scene. In the herd, there's only the herd. You know what I mean? It's when I teach open awareness, I always tell them, free and easy, touch and go. <laughs> very easy motto for them to remember. Free and easy, touch and go. What does that mean? I say, you let the mind freely roam among the senses. And take it easy. You don't try to note every single thing that is happening in the senses. You relax, take it easy, allow the mind to freely move around the senses. That's free and easy. Touch and go means, once you are aware of an object, you don't hold on to it. Particularly your breath or your rising and falling. Once you are there, then you ask the mind, what else can the mind be aware of? Whenever there is an object arising in any of the senses, you don't say that. The moment you know it, you touch and you go to the next one. For those people who have been used to doing focus awareness, they will try to, you know, from one object to another object, and that makes them stressful. <laughs> You're supposed to be free and easy. You just step back and allow the mind to go, as long as you don't stay. That is what is meant by in the scene, there is only the scene. Because once you see something, and you hold on to it, then you're going to grasp its image, and its signs, and its features, you're going to make a story out of it. You press something, you recognize it, it will trigger off a memory. Or you will trigger off some thoughts about what you just saw, what you just heard, what you're going to do in the future, and so forth. This is my basis. Instruction to Bahia. This similar instruction, similar set of instructions, same words, was given to another monk. Bahia was not a monk, he was not a bhikkhu, he was a nation from another order. In India, either he belonged to another order, or he could just self-renounce. It doesn't matter. But there is one other monk, an old monk, who renounced him when he was in his advanced age. His name is Malukyaputta. Malukyaputta was an old man. He had renounced when he was late in age. He had approached the Buddha and asked him many questions in many other suttas. But in this particular sutta, the Buddha gave him the same instructions. In the scene, there shall be only the scene, and so forth. He didn't get enlightened. He didn't become an agami or even a sotapan by listening to that. But he interpreted that in a different way. He interpreted it as guarding the doors of the senses. 
Now why would you do that? Because the standard instruction for the Buddha when he asked the monks to guard the door of the senses or practice sense restraint is having seen an object with the eye one does not grasp at its sign one does not grasp at its features failing which one could be overwhelmed or invaded by evil unwholesome state of longing and dejection having heard a sound with the ear having smelled a smell with the nose having tasted a taste with the tongue having felt something with the body having cognized something with the mind one does not grasp at its signs or features failing which one could be invaded by evil unwholesome state such as longing and dejection longing and dejection actually is you could say it's a synonym for greed and hatred aversion here there's also this idea of touch and go having seen an object with the eye if you don't grasp the signs and features it means that you are not proliferating it the moment you grasp the signs and features it means you are going in for some sort of proliferation what is the difference between signs and features? it's like as you are all looking at me and something moves at the corner of your eye it flashes past you and then there's this curiosity that could arise in your mind and you want to know what it is but initially you just a flash and you might sort of sense that it's a man or a woman that went past that is grasping at the sign if you are curious and you want to know who or what it is and then if you follow the curiosity you turn and look carefully and then you can see the features or who it is particularly what is doing what sort of features that person has that is grasping at the sign but if you don't grasp at the signs and features it means that you just know seeing is just seeing you don't go and figure out what you saw hearing is just hearing smelling is just smelling don't try to work it out what sort of smell it is and once you try to figure out what sort of smell it is and it's durian somebody is eating durian I'm going to get one or so this thought will start rising in your mind <laughs> I've got two very good examples very good strong basis for my teaching of open awareness actually it is simply restraint of the senses once you are able to restrain the senses one senses means including the mind not just the five senses because whatever arises in your mind it could be a thought it could be a memory it could be a vision then if you don't grasp the signs and features it means you are not proliferating you are just knowing there you go and you might be able to know for example that it's an emotion it's a thought you might know the story a bit but then you just know and then you don't grasp it you don't follow it you just let it go and then you come back to your senses you just move around in that way going further I have another evidence which is found in the Satipatthana Sutta on Dhammanupasana the contemplation of Dhammas and there we have the first exercise is 
to contemplate the five hindrances, the second is to contemplate the five gates, the third one is to contemplate the six sense bases. In that also, you can see, but there is going one step ahead. Instead of just touch and go, now you try to see cause and condition. Because in that instructions for contemplating the six sense bases, you say, you're supposed to know. He knows the eye, he knows the eye object, and he knows the factors that arise on account of the two. Which means, if the eye has seen something, then there is a factor that arises. A factor means what? A factor means greed, hatred, delusion, one of those departments of the mind. Then he begins to link that between. You can see the cause and condition. What is the cause and condition? Why this factor arise? Due to the eye coming into contact with the eye object. That's why in my instructions for open awareness, I start off with just touch and go. This is what I call samatha. Because there's no wisdom involved, there's no investigation. When you keep the mind occupied with the sea sense objects without proliferating, then what happens is that the mind has no time to think about the past or the future. If you are really in the so-called present, you are watching what's happening in the senses, particularly the five senses, then you've got no time to think about the past or the future. And what is it that usually distracts people? Thoughts about the past and the future. The mind has a very special function which is different from the five sense consciousness. The five senses can only take their respective objects in the present moment. The eye can only see something which is right here, right now. The ear can only hear sound that is the vibrations of which are hitting your eardrum. If your video set is not on, your mobile device is not on, what you saw last night in a YouTube, you will not be able to see with your eyes. It's the same for all the other senses. But it's different with the mind. The eye can only see colors, cannot hear, cannot smell, cannot taste. The tongue can only taste, cannot hear, cannot see, cannot smell. Each of the five senses has got its own respective objects, that's all. And they are very selfish, they only think about their own objects. I'm just interested in seeing, I don't care what the ear is doing, I don't care what the nose is doing. <laughs> that's why one Brahmin came, Onaba Brahmin, he came to the Buddha and asked the Buddha, he says, Master Gautama, these five faculties, each of them have their own domain, each of them have their own objects. Then, who is the refuge? How can an organism function if each sense organ is doing its own job and not coordinating? Then how does it function? Who is your refuge? He was a Brahmin, so he was expecting Buddha to say, Atta. <laughs> Saying that the Buddha says, Mano is the mind that is the coordinator of the five senses. The mind is able to take each of the objects of the five senses. The five senses can only take each respective object, but the mind can take all the objects and more beyond that, beyond the five senses. The mind is the coordinator. The difference between the mind and the five senses is that the mind can take objects of the past, 
present, future, whereas the five senses can only take objects in the present moment. So-called present, but actually it's not really present. <laughs> the five senses actually take objects in the present, but the mind, if it's aware of what's happening in the senses, it's not in the present. It's the immediate past. If you go to the very micro level, you see first, and then only the mind is aware of seeing. The body feels pain first, and then only the mind knows that pain. More obvious is the mind thinks first, and then mindfulness is aware that thinking has arisen. Your anger arises first, and then mindfulness is aware that there is anger. Actually, mindfulness is always one step behind. It's not present moment awareness that most people say, but actually it is. Mindfulness is always awareness of the past. Whether it's the immediate past, the intermediate past, or the distant past, like past life. However, in conventional language, people say, be in the present. Being in the present, as a definition for mindfulness, has swept the whole world. Everywhere and now in the whole world, mindfulness practice is being hailed as something very positive and very effective. It has been used in almost all aspects of human endeavor, not only in spiritual pursuits, but in education, in sports, in business, in politics, in the U.S. Army, everywhere. And everybody finds it so efficacious. Why? Simply because of this very simple definition of present moment awareness. Why is this present moment awareness so effective? This brings us to the subject of composure again. As I said, when you try to be with the five senses, and since the five senses can only take present objects, the mind can only see what is in the present, the ear can only hear what is in the present, and so forth. When you try to be with the five senses, you are as close to the present as you can be. Because the awareness of what is happening in the senses it's not the five sense awareness itself, it is the mindfulness that is aware of what's happening at the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind after it has happened. This present moment awareness has become so effective in composing people's mind that they become more efficient in whatever they do. Because your mind is more composed, you can do things effectively, more efficiently, whatever it could be, from education to sports to politics to business to military strategies to whatever. The most important thing is to get the mind composed. This present moment awareness is a very useful tool to compose the mind. Once the mind is composed, then you can apply to whatever you want to do and very effectively. That's why I'm saying if you just keep your attention to the five senses, you do open awareness, just being aware of the five senses, touch and go, touch and go, there's no wisdom, because you're not investigating. Wisdom starts only with investigation. Samatha is just to calm and compose your mind. Usually in my retreats, the first few days, I'll just ask them to touch and go. And after that, when the minds are more composed, I will say, don't be complacent, don't just be satisfied with the composure you get by touch and go, now you need to 
investigate. You try to incline your mind to understand how things work. Particularly when your mind becomes more composed, then instead of looking at the sense objects, then you should pay more attention to the subject. Trying to anchor the mind to the five sense objects is only a tool to compose the mind, to extract the mind from compulsive and obsessive thinking. Because if the mind is busy with the five senses, it's got no time to think of the past or the future, or to imagine. It's only a tool, a means to an end, it's not an end in itself, but people tend to get stuck there. Whether you're doing focused awareness or you're doing open awareness, once there's peace and calm, people tend to get stuck there. You have to remind them to go one step ahead and to incline the mind to investigate. The first thing you will notice if you incline the mind to look at the subject, the subject is the one that is aware of what's happening at the senses. The one that is reacting, that is responding. Then you will see that everything, objects and subject, keeps on changing all the time. That's the good thing about doing open awareness. If you are doing focused awareness, you are so focused on just one object that you don't really see things passing away, changing. You don't even look at the subject. You always focus on the object. You don't even look at the subject. That's why people, when they are so object-oriented. They forget the subject, they get headaches because they're trying too hard. You're trying to watch the rising and falling, trying to watch the breath, you want to see the beginning, middle and end clearly and unconsciously you manipulate the breath and they get headaches. And this becomes a syndrome. For people who have done this sort of meditation before, they try very hard to please their teacher. The teacher said they must see the beginning, middle and end. During reporting, they try to tell the teacher, I see beginning. <laughs> But in order to do that, they have to manipulate their breath. It only conditions their mind, and every time they meditate, they get headaches. Of course, yogis who have done that for 15, 20 years, <laughs> trying to get the focus, not knowing that they're actually unconsciously manipulating their breath. Why? Because they're not looking at the subject, they're looking at the object. They're so engrossed in the object, they forget about the subject. It's the subject that is manipulating. That's why I always tell my yogis, once you have really composed your mind, don't get complacent, pay more attention to the subject. The subject is the awareness itself, the subject is the mind that is reacting, that is responding to whatever is happening at the sense. I'm not saying that you ignore the object, you pay more attention to the subject, but you still keep on with the object. If not, then what happens is, if you're not skillful enough, you'll get dragged into the subject and then you start to make stories. That also you're going to need to touch and go. You just know what's happening in your mind and then let go and come back to the senses. But the most important thing is you must incline the mind. If you don't incline the mind to want to know, to want to investigate, the mind is very lazy. You'll just be content with free easy touch and go. <laughs> Investigation is very important. If you know the seven factors of enlightenment, you will know that first one is mindfulness, second is virya, third is dhamma vitaya, which is investigation of the dhamma. 
That's why I titled the I wrote the book or his disciples compiled the book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough. You just cannot just be aware, you cannot just be mindful. That's not the end of the story, that's just the beginning. But, even though it's just the beginning, like I said, it has swept the whole world because it's so effective. Because it's a moment of awareness. So effective, even if though you have not done any meditation before, if you really feel very troubled, what do people do? I mean, if you are someone who is more active lifestyle, then their trouble, they go to the gym, they go take a swim, they go jogging, they go mountain climbing. All these are activities that require you to be in the present moment. After you've done the activity, wow, well, you feel so nice. Because you're not thinking about a problem. <laughs> and after that, maybe your mind becomes too composed, then you can solve the problem easier. Actually, it's very simple. That's why I've been teaching this mindful hiking retreat for a couple of years now. And the people who join my retreat, some of them have joined this regular retreat before. Sit walk retreat in the retreat center. And they say, mindful hiking, my mind can get composed on the very first day itself. So you go for a normal retreat, first two days grappling with sleepiness and the thoughts. <laughs> grappling with all the baggage you haven't left behind. Either you're sleepy or you're restless. But when you're hiking, especially in a very challenging terrain, you've got no time. You've got to be right there in the present moment. <laughs> That's why I say it's introspective mindfulness for the fit and young at heart. <laughs> You don't have to be young in age. Some of the youngsters can't even keep up with me. <laughs> Especially the youngsters nowadays. Why? Because their lifestyle is so different. Well, at one time I was having this mindful acting retreat in Pulai, Gunung Pulai, down in Johor. Many of the participants, hikers, were all senior citizens, all retirees. There were about two or three people in their early 40s or 30s. They were the ones who were lagging behind. The senior citizens were in front. <laughs> Even old ladies, 78 years old, they can go in front. <laughs> Why? Because these retirees, you've got nothing to do every day to go hiking. <laughs> so these youngsters are glued in front of the computer or they're playing with their mobile device. <laughs> Lack of exercise. Not fit enough. It doesn't matter how old you are. It's a matter of whether you're fit and young at heart to be able to do this. Since Wise is located next to Gunung, should have a nice location, a nice base for my food hiking routine next time. Practicing <laughs> open awareness is, as I said, a tool to compose your mind. But although it is also samatha, if you just stick to just see if you touch and go, it's still samatha. It has an advantage over the sort of samatha that is gained through focused awareness. Why? Because in focused awareness, you have trained the mind to be still and peaceful when there is one object, which is clear. And you are not used to many objects coming to your senses. They are very unsettling. For these people who are so used to focused awareness, the refuge is always a quiet place. Nobody disturbs. Then only they can settle down. The advantage is that when you do open awareness and you are aware of all the senses, then what happens is the mind becomes 
habituated to things changing. Initially, it might be a bit difficult. But it's not difficult for beginners. People who have never done meditation before, when I them to do open awareness, they find it very easy. They can settle down very easy. It's only those old-timers who have done focus awareness before, they always complain. <laughs> because they have trained their mind to just focus on one thing, they cannot open up. <laughs> oh, habits die hard. That's why it's very important to habituate the mind. Then they see things come and go. You don't bother with them. You know how to accept things coming and going. And then very easily you can just go to Vipassana. Because Vipassana is all about seeing things coming and going. You can see that they are all changing, impermanent, satisfactory. It's not me, not mine. Later on you will see when you start to incline the mind to understand cause and conditioning. Then you can see very clearly that whatever happens in your mind, whatever happens to the subject, whether you have a thought, a reaction, a judgment, a comment, whatever, all these are products of causes and conditions. Present causes through the senses. Past conditioning. Past experiences. Things that happened in the past, the way you were conditioned by your parents, by your teachers, by your friends, by the media, by everything. You see, every little thought that you have is a product of past conditioning. How can that be yours? There's no originality. It's all different permutations. When I was studying in USM way back in 1977-78, I was doing housing building and planning. We were in the studio designing a lot of things. And one of my friends gave a very interesting, a witty definition for originality. Because we had this American professor, Americans always talk about originality to be original. And then he said, originality is the art of conceiving your source of inspiration. <laughs> Whatever creation you have, it's all because you're exposed to what you see. Architects, you look at all these magazines, they're copied here, and then nobody knows you copy this, this, and then you get your own creation. You call it original. <laughs> There's no originality. There's no eye there. Whatever ideas you have, whatever opinions you have, whatever views you have are all put out of force and conditioning. You don't have to be proud of how clever you are. <laughs> Not that you really need to be ashamed of how stupid you are. <laughs> That's the advantage of not-self. Yeah, no one to blame. <laughs> not me, not my one, no one to blame. <laughs> Uh, then people say, oh, in that case, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> if you understand oneself, not self, that's very good because you don't have to blame yourself, you don't blame anybody, there's no one there. That's good. But then remember, the noble effort path also has one factor called right effort. What is right effort? Right effort is the desire or the energy expended to abandon unwholesome mental states, to prevent unwholesome mental states from arising, to arouse yet an arisen wholesome mental states, and then to maintain and develop them to fulfillment. There is an element of abandonment, an element of developing. If you find that you look at yourself, you have this nasty judgment about some person, then you look back at it, that's not me, not mine, not myself. Uh, you can see 
he's citing that like a parrot, but you can see the cause and conditioning. Why is it that this judgmental comment on this person? It's because of this person's current behavior and my past experience, my past conditioning, my past values. My values that are based on past experience and past conditioning. Because of this, nasty comment arose. But it's not me, not mine, it's not due to all these causes and conditions. It's not yours. You don't have to blame yourself. If you blame yourself for being judgmental, there's another unwholesome state. Aversion. You look at it as this not me, not mine, just put up causes and conditions, but you have right effort. What is unwholesome, you abandon. Don't do it. Don't pursue that negative judgment on somebody else. That's how you balance between not self and right effort and how you can correct yourself. Well, I hope what I said today is clear enough and beneficial. Any questions? Sometimes the word right effort has been used, whereas sometimes the false supreme effort is being used. They're the same, actually. Is that what you're talking about? False supreme effort is what Bhante mentioned, overcoming, abandoning, promoting. You call supreme effort. Like the Buddha talked about the five faculties, five spiritual faculties, he also talked about the five powers. Same thing, but different names. Because it's something from a different aspect. It's the same as the nature of empathy. Anyone else? Morning, Bhante. What Bhante has shared reminds me of something which is always puzzled in my mind. In the Mangala Sutta, which we recited just now, it came up again. It says, don't associate with the foolish associate only with the wise. If we connect it with what Bhante has just shared, that it's not me, not my, it's all cause and effect, my values based on whatever. What did Buddha mean when he says the foolish? Did he mean it in the sense of the IQ, EQ, or people with the bad conduct or the immoral people? And the wise is what? What did Buddha mean by that? You see, we are all products of causes and conditions. We are all related with everything else. If you are weak, you would be influenced by your environment. That's why when you were a kid, your parents were very careful that you mix with the right people because you'll be influenced by your peers. If you're powerful, you can influence others. You have to look at yourself. If you're powerful or you're weak, if you are weak, better don't mix around with all those people, they are going to influence you. If you are powerful, then you can better mix with the fools and you can influence them. <laughs> by foolish and by wise, of course the Buddha meant foolish in the sense of the no beautiful path, in the sense of wholesome, unwholesome behavior. And wise is the opposite. Anyone else? One more. When yeah. Buddha mentioned the word dark, you see he meant about skeptical dark yeah. in terms of like even the hindrances or in the Sotapanna where he says overcome dark. Is just meant skeptical dark? There are two types of doubts that is referred to. The first one is in doubt about the five hindrances. In the suttas, there are sometimes, for example, in the gradual training template where the Buddha by default would give this Cause of training to his monastics. First, you observe your precepts. Then, secondly, you guard the door of the senses. Then, thirdly, you practice moderation in eating. Then, fourthly, you practice wakefulness. 
And then fifthly, you practice mindfulness and clear awareness. And then the sixth, you look for a secluded place after you've gone through all this it's a step by step thing. And then you sit down, configured with uh, mindfulness established in the four, and then you abandon the five hindrances. After you've abandoned the five hindrances, then you go on to develop the jhana. In the standard template that the Buddha would give for the monastic, but the elements will vary depending on whom he's talking to. There are various variations of the template found in the sutras. When he talks about the five hindrances there, before one goes on to develop the jhanas, he said it is the hindrance about doubt is about unwholesome states. This person doesn't know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And because you don't know what is wholesome or unwholesome, how are you going to practice? That is the sort of doubt he's talking about when it comes to the hindrances, how to practice. When it talks about doubt in regards to a Sotapan, that's different. That one is with regards to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, in the sense that because the Sotapan has got this experiential understanding of the Dhamma, he, by inference, would have no doubt that the Buddha was the one who discovered this and then revealed it to us, this way of getting there. And that the Dhamma, what he has realized himself, and the Sangha, the monastic community, there were the Buddha's disciples who also practiced this path. By inference, because of his own experiential understanding of the Dhamma, he would come to that freedom of doubt. That's a different sort of doubt. Okay? There is actually nothing to do with those like conventional people say we adopt this and that. It's not about that. For example, if you are meditating, you are meditating under the instruction of a teacher. And then you have, you have doubts about this instruction, or you have doubts about that teacher. That is also a hindrance to your practice, isn't it? That sort of doubt is also a hindrance. It's basically, you could say, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, able to decide. Are the instructions correct? And is that is wholesome or not? If there's a doubt, it's a hindrance, right? If you don't know, then you cannot progress. When it comes to wisdom, then you have to ask yourself, why? Why are you doubting? In fact, there is a list of remedies for overcoming the doubt in the five hindrances. One of them is, if you have doubt, you should clear the doubt. If you can't do it yourself, then go and ask your teacher. Ask someone who is reliable. In the Burmese tradition, we are lucky because we have regular interviews. In the Thai forest tradition, no interview. You just go and get instructions to the teacher, you go and do it yourself for three months, come back later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't give clear instructions, they give you very cryptic instructions that the Buddha gave the Bahia, yeah, yeah, you can figure it out yourself. <laughs> How you describe, I mean, between restraint and trying to learn, learning about the unwholesome states and all that. Because just now when you describe how we should practice, it's like we should be aware of the five senses and then that is where there is some amount of restraint there already because you don't proliferate when you are aware, right? How do you adjust, balance that between like letting it arise and so that you can observe and learn from it? I mean, what's the balance between that? I've got two strategies. 
One is for the mind and one is for the five senses. For the mind is other anchor. Other anchor means, first one, other means to accept whatever arises in your mind. Whether it's uh, feelings, perceptions, memories, things you like, you don't like. First, you accept. Then, D means you don't reject, you don't follow, you don't ignore. So, ignore means you know what it is. Like what you're saying, the thought arises, you don't just say, like in some systems, they say, thinking, thinking, planning, planning, and you cut it off, and then you come back to your object. In that way, you don't recognize what it is. Then there can be no wisdom. There will be samatha, because the mind doesn't proliferate in answer to the primary object. But say, don't ignore. If you ignore, it's samatha. You know what it is, but then after that you go to the A, which acknowledge what it is, and finally anchor your mind to the five senses. That is for the, what is happening up in the mind. But when you are with the five senses, then you practice free and easy touch and go. For the five senses, then you don't need to acknowledge what it is. But for the mind, then you need to. You need to know what sort of thought it is, what sort of emotion it is. You know, but you don't think about it, you let it go, come back to the senses. At what point should one start to investigate? Maybe that's what you're trying to ask. I would say that when you attain composure, now, what is composure? Composure means that either you are just with the senses, with no thoughts, sometimes that happens, or you are with the five senses, you are touch and go, and you go, you see things coming and going, it's not proliferating, and then the thoughts are stays very far apart. One thought pop up, then no more, and you see the senses, and then another thought. That's the time when you are composed enough to start to investigate. Which means to say you incline the mind, next time any thoughts arises, particularly those thoughts that upset you, some issues that you have in the past, then you incline the mind to want to know how to resolve those issues. Why do I feel this way? How do I resolve this issue? Then drop it, don't think about it, and then come back to the senses. Stay anchored to the senses. That's when you start to incline the mind. But you don't think about it, you just want to know, but you don't think about it, you come back to your five senses. What I hear is that it's actually really important to not proliferate, actually. Exactly. So really must come back to the senses, but then still not ignore, because these states arise right. as the contact happens. Right. You acknowledge that they have arisen, yes. this unwholesome state, but still don't proliferate right. them. We try to know what the contents of the thought are, mm. or why, or feeling or perception. You have a perception of this person, this guy, I just don't like him. You have this idea, but then you don't think about it. I can relate one incident that happened to one of my yogis recently in SPS. She was maybe in her late 40s or early 50s. She was meditating. In my Hokkien retreat, there were a lot of old ladies there. One day she was in the hall, and then this old lady came in, walked in the hall, and the moment she saw her, there was this light. She doesn't know this lady at all, no connections, no dealings with her. Then she wondered, why do I feel this fine? I don't even know her. But she was quite an advanced yogi, she has been meditating for many years. So she just put the question aside and then came back to her free and easy touch and go. And then a few sittings later, the thought arose, the answer came. The answer didn't have to come at the moment, it would come later. It was because when she was a kid, her grandmother, in the old days, they don't like girls, they like boys. <laughs> she was not well treated by the grandmother because she was a girl. And so that had stuck in her for a long time. 
And this old lady that came in looked like a grandmother. That's why this is like her. The moment she realized this, then it just disappeared. The next time she saw this old lady again, there was no feeling of this. That's the best test of whether there's true insight or not. <laughs> really insight. It has happened a lot of times to a lot of people with uh, unresolved, unexplained past issues. I ask them to use this technique and come back to the senses and usually things that happen. It's like you're doing psychotherapy yourself. You don't have to see Dr. Pang to <laughs> raise your money. But <laughs> <laughs> once read, a uh, teacher mentioned that uh, Vipassana starts only when thinking ceases. Funny piece of experience. What are your thoughts on this? This is probably from the Abhidhamika. Our current meditation that is being taught from Burma is very, very heavily influenced by Abhidhamic thought and philosophy. For them, they feel that thoughts are not supposed to be observed because thoughts are concepts. For the Abhidhamika, Vipassana objects are ultimate reality which means they are Sita, Sita-Sika, and Rupa. These three only, which means they stay only all these material elements that they can feel in the body. Then, Sita-Sika, like greed, hatred, not the contents of the greed or the hatred, but just greed, hatred, Samadhi, mindfulness, all these things, not the contents of them, but just these qualities only. That's why they say when you are thinking, thinking, you don't look into the contents of the thought. You just not thinking, thinking, go, come back. You are rising and falling, come back to whatever you are doing. For them, thinking is not ultimate reality. It's only concept. You cannot develop vipassana by watching concepts. But to me, I think that is a misconception. Because nowhere in the suttas did the Buddha define the object of vipassana as ultimate reality. Anyway, the word ultimate reality is not found in the suttas. It is the creation of the Abhidhamikas. What is the object of Vipassana. This is very clearly stated in several suttas, the most important of which is the Tatiya Samadhi Sutta that can be found in the Anguttara Nikaya Book of Force. Here the Buddha talks about four types of individuals. He says there's one individual who has Samatha but no Vipassana. And then second individual has Vipassana but no Samatha. You can still get Vipassana without Samatha. This is the Buddha's word. And the third is one who has neither, neither Samatha nor Vipassana. And the fourth is one who has both Samatha and Vipassana. Then the Buddha says, what should these individuals do? The first one who has Samatha but no Vipassana should approach somebody who has Vipassana and ask him three questions on how to practice. And then the person who has Vipassana but no Samatha should approach somebody who has Samatha and ask him four questions on how to practice Samatha. The third person who has neither, you're going to approach both and ask them how to practice. <laughs> so he's going to ask seven questions. And then the last one is that you should not be complacent with the Samatha and Vipassana you have. Don't be complacent with your lower attainments, but strive towards ultimate liberation. So the four questions for Samatha are very interesting. Four questions for Samatha are, one, how to make the mind stand properly. Second question, how to make the mind sit properly? Third question, how to unify the mind? And last question, how to compose the mind? So these are the four steps of Samatha. You will notice that all is about the mind, sita, sita, 
how to make the chitta stand properly, how to make the chitta sit properly, how to make the chitta unify, and how to make the chitta compose. It's all about the chitta, about the mind. This is what the masa is. It's about how to still the mind. You might wonder what do you mean by make the mind stand properly. This is the literal translation of the Pali. The way I understand it is that usually the mind is running all over the place. Thinking of this, thinking of that, running all over the place. You make it stand properly means you make it stop running. Stand is more stable than running. But then, you make it sit means it's more stable than stand. Maybe you're trying to stabilize the mind, make it calm down. Unify means you unify the mind. Instead of running all over the place, you stay with the subject. You stay in one place. Initially, you go out to see the object. Then, later on, you don't do that. You just stay with the mind and the object will come to you. You just watch the subject. Awareness itself, the subject, and the object will come to you. You don't have to go up to the senses. That's unifying the mind. When you're composed, it means to say that samadhi, you are able to properly bring and place the mind wherever you want to. That is about the mind. The three questions about vipassana are all about sankhara. First, how do you view sankhara? Second, how do you investigate Sankhara? Third, how to clearly see, how to distinctly see Sankhara. I'm going to do that soon because it's not an easy way to translate. Sankhara means, you know the five very gates? You have form, feeling, perception, and then Sankhara, and then you have Vijnana or consciousness. Now, this Sankhara and that Sankhara are not the same. The word Sankhara is used in many different contexts in the Pali scriptures, in Principally, six major contexts. In the case of the five aggregates, Sankhara is volitional formations. Any mental activity accompanied by intention or volition. Feelings and perceptions got no volition. Whatever you feel, whatever you perceive, is a product of past conditioning. You've got no choice. Huh? Perceive means you recognize something, a memory pops up. This came out, you've got no choice about it. Consciousness has got no choice. If your organs are in good working order, you can't help if a loud sound turns, you got to hear. If somebody pricks you, you got to feel. you got no choice. But Sankhara is intention. You have a choice. All these mental activities that are accompanied by intention are Sankhara. However, in the three questions about how to practice Vipassana, Sankhara does not mean that. Sankhara means whatever is a product of causes and conditions. That is Sankhara. You have active Sankhara and you have passive Sankhara. The Sankhara of the five aggregates, volitional formations or intentional formations, that is active Sankhara. Passive Sankhara is like this table, this chair, this building. These are all passive. These are made of causes and conditions. Whatever Sankhara it is, whether it's passive or active, you have to view them in a certain way and then you have to investigate them and then you have to distinctly see them how to go about doing this that is what a person who has no vipassana should ask someone who has vipassana interestingly the Buddha did not answer the question in the sutta I think because he wants you to go and see the person to ask him not to give you the theory but to give you the actual practice so how to do it <laughs> he never answered all these questions for samatha or vipassana no answer you're supposed to give someone who has really had it, then he will answer you experientially, not theoretically. <laughs> what is Sankhara? For me, Sankhara does not only mean ultimate reality. 
your thoughts are also product of cause and condition. Your opinions, your ideas, your beliefs are of cause and condition. That's why these are also the personal objects. They should also be viewed. How should they be viewed? They should be viewed as anicca to kanata. That's why they should be viewed. How to investigate? The way I told you just now, when the mind is composed, you incline the mind to verify the three characteristics, to see the cause and condition. I mean, incline only, not to actually think. That's how you investigate. And then the, the last one, how to distinctly see that is the result of the first two. The first one is theory, right view. When you listen to Dhammata, people tell you what is Anitta, Dukkha, Nata, all these things, that is theory. The second one is to try to verify this by investigating. And the third one is the actual verification itself that comes through insight. That is the product of the first two. The Abhidhamikas, they are very restricted. The problem is, when you try to practice Vipassana with these Abhidhamikas, you can do so only in a retreat situation. Because when you come back to the world, all these concepts, how are you going to do Vipassana? That's why they have a lot of problems when they come back to the world. They cannot adjust. They never teach you how to adjust. But when you are back in the world, what is giving you the problems? All the concepts. What your beliefs, your perceptions, all these things are giving you the problems. You should look at this as also a Nitya Dukkha These are also very good objects of Vipassana. Right? Anyone else? Nope. Okay. Uh-huh.